0: Esther 2, verse 1, and the word of the Lord says this. After these things, when the anger of the king had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem and susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young, women, young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. May we be blessed by the reading of God's word this morning. You may all be seated. so close rob tennessee i mean i was cheering them on they did they won the first quarter i mean one day right one day they'll beat bama i was th- i was thinking to myself when i was like watching some of the highlights i'm like man it would be a glorious morning to get to come to church and like cheer on tennessee volunteer fans that they beat alabama not this year though maybe next year just uh, one way of announcement, then we'll pray, and then we'll jump into God's Word this morning. I want to thank everyone that came out yesterday for the Trunk or Treat. Uh, if you see uh, Miss Jerry this morning, tell us she did a great job. I, I think we had about 70 to 75 people uh, here. Um, it, it was a great turnout, um, just I had a number of visitors. So again, thank you all who came uh, and volunteered and opened your trunk and let the kids come. But tell Miss Jerry thank you uh, for that. Um, and all of her hard work yesterday. And as we've been praying, we'll continue to pray. We're in the process of putting together a search uh, committee for a youth pastor. So at this time, I want to pray for that, pray for uh, the youth pastor, whoever God would have for us and for us to receive them. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll jump into Esther chapter 2. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that we would find our delight in you. Pray that we find our comfort in you, our peace in you, our hope in you, and through your son, Jesus, who offers us life and life to the full. So I I pray that for all of us this morning. So grateful, God, for the opportunity yesterday to minister to people through our trunk or treat and for all the visitors that came. Thank you for Miss Jerry and her team uh, that pulled that off yesterday. I I pray that it was an encouragement uh, and glorifying to you at the same time. And now, God, we do, we come to you and we ask that you would uh, bring us the right uh, youth pastor, that you would prepare us for them and them for, um, and them to us. And so, God, I, I pray for this selection of this committee that would begin that search. I, I pray that you would raise up the right committee uh, that has a desire to find the right person. And so just lead us, guide us. We submit all of our desires and wants to you, and we pray that you would reveal your will to us, your good and pleasing will, as you say in your word. Now, God, we come to your word this morning. We ask that you, through your Holy Spirit, would open our hearts, our minds, and our eyes to see and to receive from your word this morning. Your word, God, has been given to us by you. It is inerrant, infallible, and inspired. Every word that comes out of um, this Um, book is from you and of you and so I pray that this morning you would do what only you can do with your word and that is to search our hearts and to help us fall more in love with you and to be a witness to you in this world. So lead us, guide us, uh, take us on this um, adventure through your word to uh, discover you and discover ourselves. We pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Sorry, I'm super distracted. I have something in my eye. I'm like trying to pray and like something's like jabbing me in my eye. Like, so if for whatever reason I run out of the room and go to the bathroom to wash my eye, you'll know why. Um, super distracting. Here we are in Esther chapter 2. The book of Esther is really about the providence of God. Remember what we said last week about the providence of God. The providence of God is a theological word that simply means this. That God knows the future and sees into the future, but he's acting to accomplish his goals and what he's already seeing into the future. So God sees the future, but he's currently acting in what he sees into the future. So he's setting all things in motion and has his sand throughout all things. We see that through the entire book of Esther. We come here to chapter 2. I thought chapter 1 was a difficult passage to teach, and now this morning chapter 2 is more difficult difficult than chapter 2. There's a lot of speculation about the book of Esther. Here's the reason there's so much speculation. There's no, um, most of the time God's Word has commentary on God's Word. So there's other parts of the Bible that will refer back to other parts of the Bible. There's no place in God's Word that has any commentary about um, the book of Esther. So a lot of times you can cross-reference. There's no cross-reference in all of God's word about the book of Esther. So it leaves us with with a lot of speculation. It leaves us with a lot of us, man, seeking God to say to uh, and ask God, God, reveal to us what you meant in your word. And so that's what I've been doing this week. Uh, The commentaries uh, that I read, the studying I did, there's so much debate about this uh, chapter. Here's the deal with chapter 2. When you read chapter 2, you can read it, and we have this Sunday school, children's Sunday school idea about this chapter. That that is not the case at all. Veggie Tales did a poor job of depicting this story. It is not a cute story. If you really look at this chapter, and what my hope is to look at this chapter to reveal to us through what God had, to us in the way that this chapter was written. It is more like this. It is much more of a story like The Bachelor. Now I'm not going to dog The Bachelor. I don't watch The Bachelor. But when you look and read the story of Esther chapter 2. Think of it uh, the, the Persian version of uh, The Bachelor. And so what we're going to see is how God is going to use his will in spite of sin. This story is all about sin. It's not a cute story. It's not a PG story. It is an R-rated story that God is going to use for his glory and for our good. Throughout the book of Esther, see, what happens is we come to Esther, we read Esther knowing the end of Esther. Right, the end of Esther is a beautiful story of God using one woman as he placed as the queen in this wicked um, Persian empire to deliver God's people that would not leave when God told them to leave. And so King Queen Esther at the end of the story is the woman that's pushing her people back to Jerusalem to worship God. So that's the story. We already know the end of the story. But we're not at the end of the story in chapter 2. We're at the very beginning how God is going to work in his way, and his will, to put this one woman into a place of power so that his will would be accomplished. But if you look at the four main characters of chapter 2, Esther included, all of them are in some place sinning against the holy God, even Esther. Now, I think we can come to Esther chapter 2, the book of Esther, and we think, man, Esther, she's this amazing, godly woman. Yes, she ends that way, but that's not who we see in chapter 2. We see a terrified, trembling young woman that does not know how to stand up for who she is. We see that just in how we read her name. There's two names given for Esther, a Persian name and a Jewish name, meaning she's got this dual personality. Who she is and who she portrays to be are two different people. I wonder for us this morning if that's true for many of us. Who we really are is not who we always display that we are. Now you're going to see her uncle... Mordecai, her cousin Mordecai, the, one, the man that was given charge over her, kind of lead her astray. Again, we can come and we can listen to Mordecai and think Mordecai was this godly man. As I'll show in the text, I don't believe he was. So again, my hope is to show us from the word of God, chapter 2, how God uses all things for his good and for his glory to accomplish his purposes. His hand is always moving in spite of human interaction. In spite of our sin, God is still moving and wants to move. There's four characters in this story. Those four characters I'm going to look at. Remember, you've got to ask yourself, who are you in this story? There is someone that's underneath this story that none of us are. That's King Jesus. We'll see at the end. But the four people are the king, King Xerxes, the wise men, Mordecai, and Esther. So, as I read this story, I want you to think of this story more in the lens of the bachelor than I do Veggie Tales. Anyone ever seen the Veggie Tales one? It's really cute, but it's like, well, that's not quite how the story's written. It's much more written like a story you would not want to show your children. So, let's begin in chapter 2, verse 1. So, Here's the very first person that we see, King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes. King Xerxes was, remember last week, he was the king over the known world. He had uh, more power and reign than anyone else. He had the kingdom of all kingdoms, 120 provinces were under his rule and under his control. There was nothing that was really outside of his control at that point until we see come here in this chapter. And he wants more and more and more. This is a very greedy man. Remember where we left him. He had just thrown this amazing party, a six-month party that, that was for his highest officials. And at the end of the six months, that wasn't enough for him. So he invites everyone from his town to come to this party. So there's this epic party. And remember at the end of the epic party, what he wanted. He wanted his wife, the queen, to come out wearing nothing but her royal crown. And remember what the queen said. She's like, I ain't doing that. Now, that's my version. That's not exactly how she said it. But she said, I I will not do that to myself. And she said to the king, no. Remember what happened, what the king did. He was furious that she refused to be obedient. And then he went to his wise men, and the wise men said, basically, kick her out. Get rid of her. And so here we are, after this party, after these things, remember, part of these things is that, amazing party, but that he had gotten rid of his wife, the queen. Now a little later in verse 16, you'll see it says this. And when Esther was taken to the king into his royal palace in the 10th month, which was the month of Tabith in the seventh year of his reign. So after these things, he's been reigning for seven years. The, the, The scholars, and I could show you later, I just don't have the time to show you. This is Four years after that event in the palace, after the party. So four years have gone by. So four years of no queen. Well, what was this king doing in those four years? Well, this is where the king wanted more and more glory. Remember what the people said about this king. He was the king of kings, the lord of lords. Remember, that's how the people saw him. So his ego was getting larger and larger and larger. His desire to become more and more famous, more and more in control, more and more reign and power was in him. And so in these four years, this is what happens. There's this little country called Greece. And he wants to go conquer Greece. And so he and all of his army go into Greece to to win over uh, over all of Greece, to to have more power, more control. I don't recommend this movie. I've not seen this movie. I've heard about this movie. Have any of you seen or heard the movie 300? That is the story that is happening in these four years. So here's this king that goes into Greece to win over the land, and 300 Greek warriors rise up in power and defeat this king. And so here we are. After these things, after he had this party, after he got rid of his wife, now he, he's coming back to his royal throne, the first time he'd ever been defeated. And what does it say? When the anger of the king had abated, the anger meaning all that he had lost, his wife, part of his army, his ego, his prestige, his name. He comes back, tail between his legs, defeated, and he's angry about it. And where does he come home to? An empty palace. I don't know, men, if you've ever come home and you've felt defeated at work. Anyone? Like, who do you want to come home to? Your wife. Like, you want to find comfort in somebody. And so here's the king. He comes home to nobody defeated. And so that's the king. That is who he is. He's this egomaniac that's finally been defeated. I wonder if that's you this morning. Are you like the king that's been defeated? Are you like the king that his anger has been abated? Are you like the king that wants glory and honor and yet continue, you cannot find it? And you search and you search and you search and you search for it. And yet you are still as empty as you once were. That's this king. So in finding this place of emptiness, this place of really despair, this place of depression, he turns to some wise men for relief. Any of us ever done that? In this moment, instead of repentance, instead of turning to the Lord for wisdom, where does He go? To man. How many of us have done that? I know I have. In some of my darkest hours, I look for relief in the wisdom of man or the wisdom of the world. Now, we could. Really transplant the wisdom of man to the wisdom of the world. Relief through addiction, the relief through pornography, the relief to more work. You name where you turn to for relief. That's what this king was doing. I wonder how many of us this morning are turning to relief rather than to God. We're looking for a solution Rather than turning to the solution. God is our solution. So who does he turn to? The next character or characters in the story. It says this in verse 2. And then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officials in all the provinces of the kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to a harem in Susa, the citadel, Under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, let their cosmetics be given to them and let all these young women who please the king, let one of them become the queen. So he turns to the world for worldly wisdom. What's the worldly wisdom? Hey, a woman's your solution. Let me say that again when we turn to the world, the world will always give us a solution. And I'm not saying women are not a gift from God. But if your desire is for relief from a woman, I promise you this, she will become your problem. Or he will become your problem. If you're looking for relief. So these young men... Which first, that ought to, like, just highlight that in your Bibles. This king, the king of the most powerful uh, region, providence of all the world, he turns to some knuckleheads. Like, that'd be like me going to, down to Vandy, going down to frat row, and be like, hey, I got a problem, and you 20-year-olds can solve it. What do you think a 20-year-old's going to tell me? That's who he turns to, to a bunch of young men. Here's the deal, and this is why I love being at Powell's Chapel. We have wiser, older, godlier men than me in this building. I want to turn to them for wisdom. I don't want to go down to our high school department and say, and I'm not dogging any of our high school kids, but I don't think they know what I need. Hey, man, play some more PlayStation. That's hey, just play some, just game it out. Hey, why don't you join me at a a party? Drink some more alcohol. Young men come up with stupid, stupid advice. But that's who he turns to. And so I would ask us this morning, if you were the king, who are you turning to for advice? The world? The world will always tell you what you want to hear. I promise that. And The, pro, the world will always, always give you short-term relief. But I promise this. Short-term relief always turns into long-term problems. Like you ask a, a, a guy that's addicted to heroin. I promise when you take the first hit of heroin, it solves all of your problems until you get sober. And then it becomes your problem. And on and on and on we go. Who are we turning to for our wisdom? We got the king. We got wise men. Here's what I'd say. And this is my hope that none of us in this room are this. Are you the wise man? Are you giving poor advice to people? Are you giving worldly advice to people? See, this king turned to these wise men. And in that moment, these wise men could have what? Pointed him back to the Lord. But they pointed him to the world. So I'd ask you this, are you the king? Or are you the wise man? Who are you pointing people to? Well, it doesn't stop there. It says, this pleased the king. And then in verse 5, we are introduced to the third character of this story. Now, this is where the story kind of gets really jumbled. It gets messy. The next two characters, Mordecai and Esther, there's so much speculation. But I want to read the text for what the text says, and you come up with your conclusion. I'll tell you what mine is, but I won't tell you from this pulpit. I'll tell you outside of this pulpit. I want the word of God to speak to you, not Todd's word to speak to you. So here's the third character of the story. It says this. Now, there was a Jew in Susa. Now, that's a problem. Why is that a problem? Well, here's what happened. Here's a Jewish man living in exile far from Jerusalem. Now, he had been in exile. If you remember, you can read the book of Daniel. You can read Nehemiah. You can read Esther. Those are the stories about the men in exile and how God had moved his people into exile. But if you read, there's this story, there's this king, uh, King Cyrus, who delivers those people out of exile. You have to read this in the other stories, in the other accounts. So there's this king that's now given freedom to the people of God to return back to Jerusalem. But what does it say here? This man, Mordecai, a Jewish man, decided not to return in obedience to what God had called him to. God had called God's people to return back to Jerusalem. How come? Because that is where God's presence was. That is where the temple was. In the Old Testament, where the temple was, was the presence of God. And so God in his providence, through this king, this wicked king, one of the only places in all of Scripture that gives this accommodation for a wicked king, and this wicked king had freed the people to lead to return And there's a handful of Jewish people that said, no, it's more comfortable to be here than it is to return there. Now, that would be true. It's true that it's more comfortable to live in exile. But remember, that's what the Israelites said back in the Exodus story. Remember where Moses, God had called Moses to uh, redeem his people and lead his people out of slavery. Remember what happened as they're walking around. Remember the Israelites said, hey, it's a lot easier to be in slavery. So this man, Mordecai, is basically saying, hey, it's easier for me to live in the world than it is to live outside, to live apart from the world. I'd rather be comfortable here. My first question to you and my first question to me is, do we live in comfortability rather than obedience? God's call in Mordecai's life was to return back to Jerusalem, to be in the presence of God. Now, it was a lot harder to live in Jerusalem. Remember, in the book of Nehemiah, we studied that several years ago, the walls of Jerusalem had fallen, the temple had been, was being destroyed, and God was using Nehemiah to rebuild the walls to bring protection back to the people. So, so there wasn't a lot of protection in Jerusalem, but that's where God had called them. But Mordecai's like, no, it's simpler to live here. And then what does Mordecai do? It says this, that he's one of the men that was carried away in exile. And he was bringing up Hadashus or Esther. She had two names, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither mother nor father. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai, Mordecai took her as her own daughter. So, verse 8, so when the king's order and his edict was proclaimed, and when all the young women were gathered in Susa the Citadel in custody, he basically, Esther, was taken into the king's palace. Now, that's why I want to pause for a moment. This is where we can get lost in the story. This is where I'm going to have to share more about the story than which is in the text. Now, I'm a dad. If someone comes knocking on my door and asks for my daughter to be taken to the king, I don't think I'm going to say yes. Would you? Because we know later on in the text, it's pretty clear what this girl is being taken to the king, the king for. It's for a one-night stand to see if the king would like her sexually. Now, that doesn't make veggie tales. That's why I'm telling you, it's more like The Bachelor. And so if someone comes to my door and says, hey, the king wants to see your daughter because she's beautiful, I'm like, over my dead body. But what does Mordecai do? Mordecai's like, okay... Go ahead. We know later on in the story he has some kind of feelings about it because in verse 11 it says this, And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So something in Mordecai was like, ah, This isn't right, but I'd rather, be, uh, I, I'd rather not die. I'd rather my own protection, so I'm going to sacrifice Esther to you, and yet I'm going to have a guilty conscience, therefore going to walk in front of the court to make sure she's okay. Every day. And what is Mordecai's advice to her? Hey, don't tell him who you are. Hey, don't tell him you're a Jew. And so Mordecai is living in sin. And now now through commission and omission, he continues to sin. He's a sinful man out for his own protection. And yet we'll see in a moment how God will use even that. So who are you? Some commentaries say this about Mordecai. He was a cultural Christian. He was Christian by name only. I'm telling you, when you read this story in chapter 2 of Esther, it's like, oh my, no wonder people do not teach this book. One, it steps on my toes. To ask the question to myself, I hope it's asking who am I in the story? Am I the king that wants my way? Am I that wise man that gives poor advice? Or am I Mordecai that wants my own protection? And so here is Mordecai. He gives up his young daughter to this king. And then in verse 8, for the first time in the story of Esther, we see Esther. So who is Esther? Well, we know this to be true. She's an orphan. it has been adopted. She's got no parents. She lives in exile, so she's homeless. She lives with a man that's not willing to protect her. And this king sends his henchmen to come, and they grab her, and they take her into his court. What else we know about Esther? And she was beautiful. Some people have said she, and there's three other women in the Bible that it talks about, she is one of four of the most beautiful women to ever walk the planet. The first being Eve, because she was without blemish. The second being Sarah, if you remember in our study of uh, Genesis. The third being Rahab the the prostitute and the fourth here, Esther. She was beautiful to look at. It says, so she was taken into the king's court, and then for the next year, you can read in verse twelve. Now the turn, the time came for all these young women, or this young, these young women to be presented to the king, and so it says this: for six months they had oil of myrrh and six months of spices given to them, to beautify them more. So for a year, this woman is being prepared for a one-night stand. For a year. So every day for a year, Mordecai is going in front of the king's palace to check on his niece, or now his daughter, to make sure she's okay hearing the story about her beautification. In not one place do we see any response or any word from Esther. And it says this. You know, I think we can read this story and think, oh, they're living in a better place. But for these young women, many scholars say either 400 to 1,200 young girls were taken. My opinion, this is my opinion, that would be what we would call modern-day Sex trafficking. Because it all points to this one night stand with this king to what? Go back to verse 1 for his relief. His loneliness, his hurt, his shame. He was looking and seeking relief. How was he going to do that? Through these young men saying, hey, just go find a girl to solve your problems. And so think about that. For a year, extra these 400 to 1200 young girls are getting themselves ready for this one night stand that would change their life forever see because here it was only one out of 1200 that their lives would be changed only one girl would become the queen the rest of these young girls would never be sent back home again these young girls would never marry these young girls would never have children they would simply just be concubines to this king for the rest of their life. That's the truth in the story. So we can read the story and think this king had these girls and he slept with them and then sent them back home because he didn't want them. No, he kept them for his own. And it says this, if he wanted them, then he'd call them. And some he never called again. So they lived in exile in this palace with no husband, no family, no children. That is a lonely, lonely, lonely existence. And Esther, all the while, is preparing herself for this moment. And she never says a word. She doesn't talk about who she is. She doesn't talk about where she comes from. She doesn't stand up the way even the queen stood up. Now, you got to remember her contemporaries. You know who her contemporaries were? Daniel? Shadrach? Meshach and Abednego. What did those four men do? They stood up. They stood up to wicked kings because they believed in the sovereignty and the goodness of God. Remember what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said. No, we will not worship another god. No, we, we will not defile ourselves with this food. Daniel even said that. Daniel said, no, I will pray every day to my god. And the king said, well, if you don't stop praying to God, if you don't not worship me to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you three men will be thrown in the furnace, and you will be thrown into the lion's den. And all four said, "If it is what it is. Remember what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said to the king. We will not worship you. We will worship the Lord our God, whether he rescues us or not. We will worship him. What does poor, defenseless Esther do but remain silent? Now, I I don't know if she went into his bedroom that night and slept with him. I have no idea. I do know she went in. I don't know what happened behind closed doors because God's word doesn't tell us. But I can tell you this. She said nothing because what God's word tells us, she said nothing. And yet, even in her, spite of her saying nothing, there's this line that continues to happen through this story. It's the same line that we saw back in the story of Joseph. She began to win favor over these people. Why? In spite of who she was, the hand of God was on top of her. In spite of her sin, in spite of her silence, in spite of whatever she was or wasn't doing, the hand of God was directly on top of her, that gave her favor upon favor. The hand of God was that she was beautiful. That's God's goodness to her. She didn't make herself beautiful. Beauty comes by the hand of God. God's hand had been on her her whole life, preparing her for the end of the story to rescue God's people. But she remained silent. So we have these four characters in this story. The king that wanted self-gratification. The wise men who gave poor advice. Mordecai who sent his daughter and disobedience and not protection to a wicked king. And Esther, the victim in it all. And yet she remained silent. And yet in all four characters, we see the hand of God. The hand of God on the king. The hand of God on these poor, stupid, wise men. The hand of God on Mordecai and the hand of God on Esther. How come? Because of the providence of God. Because God is seeing into the future. And he knows his desire is to rescue his people. His desire, he will do whatever he has to do to accomplish his purposes, and that's to rescue his people. We see that in the life of Christ. Remember the life of Christ. Christ came to this planet as a baby to two teenagers, lived an innocent, sinless life. And yet we see in the book of Isaiah that God was, and we see in the book of Genesis, we see throughout the whole Old Testament that God's hand is always going to be on his son, but that God's hand is also going to be on these wicked people. And God's going to use their wickedness to bring Jesus into a place to crucify him. Why? To redeem his people. You see, we can come to the book of Esther. We can come to the New Testament. We come to the life of Jesus and think these men, they, they, They were outside the will of God. No, they were right in the will of God, and God was using them to accomplish his purpose. God uses sinful people to accomplish his goals. His goal is always to redeem and set people free from their sin. My challenge to you, my challenge to me this morning is twofold. The first one is this. The first is this. We go back to verse 1. Would you and I be a king... Or queen that would first submit to the Lord in repentance. So that God doesn't have to use our sinfulness to achieve his glory. But that God would use our righteousness to to accomplish that. Either way, God's going to use you the way he wants to. That's the will of God. My hope and prayer is that we'd be under submission rather than rebellion. But God will accomplish his purposes. Do we believe that to be true? So for us first is this. God will use all things for his glory. He'll use all things to redeem his people. But will he use us in our righteousness? Or will he use us in our wickedness? Either way, God will achieve his purposes. Do we believe that this morning? Amen. That's a sweet little girl right there. Let us pray.